Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter Do Death. Hello, Phoebe. How are you? Hi, Dad. I'm, I'm all right. How are you? Um, I'm fine. I'm excited about the Commonwealth Games coming to Birmingham. Yes, starting imminently. And uh, that's why we are doing this little mini-series of Commonwealth-related true crime. Yes, it's been nice to have a bit of a change from just European cases for a little bit. Yeah, for a little while until we get back to that. I'm sure there's still plenty more for us to uh, discover and tell our listeners about. Yes, um, like one that has happened in the last couple of days here in East Yorkshire. Really? Um, A young lady was found dead in her house and the suspect fled the scene. The police chased them and then the suspect, who was her boyfriend, ended up crashing his car and dying. Um, So quite a dramatic murder case that's happening here at the moment. Wow. Her and the suspect did have some children together, apparently. Right, okay. So, yeah. So, uh, developing Very. story as we... Uh, developing story and as we, speak. as we speak. And like so many murders that we talk about in the news and also ones that we cover, a real kind of domestic violence link to yeah. them. I see that David Venables, who is the elderly gentleman that we discussed two or three episodes ago, mm-hmm. uh, has been found guilty of the murder of his wife 40 years ago. Yeah. Whose body was found in 2019 in a septic tank on his farm, mm. where he used to be a pig farmer, I think, wasn't he? Yeah. And, he got uh, away with it for a very long time, didn't he? He did, yeah. And he had been in an affair mm-hmm. with apparently it was his mother's carer that he was having an affair with. Whoa. And um, And then his wife strangely disappeared. He blamed Fred West, bizarrely. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of <laughs> course that, it was Fred West. And nobody else followed it up. But um, clearing up this old septic tank, they found, well, bones, basically. That's his wife. We've been in there, well, for I mean, 37 years, I suppose, in the septic tank. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a pretty decent place to put a body if you want to get rid of one and <laughs> keep it hidden for a, a chunk of time. Yeah, he really seems to get away with it. But uh, so he's 89 now and he will be sentenced next Wednesday. Okay. So. Wait and see yeah. what happens there. What happens there? There's another case that I've been following kind of on and off for the last, probably about the last year. Um, okay. It's um, very complicated and in-depth. Basically, it's an, a disgraced attorney from South Carolina and basically all these people that he was affiliated with just started dying. So his housekeeper died. Someone who was potentially having an affair with his son was killed in a hit and run. A girl died on a boat that his son was involved with. And oh, okay. then his um, wife and son were shot dead. And then he was shot himself. And it's all been very fishy, very dodgy. Definitely worth looking into. There's a couple of really good podcast series on it. Um, yeah. It's called Murdoch Murders. But it's spelled Murdow, so it's like M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H, I think it is. Not Mur- It's not spelled Murdoch. But anyway, so yesterday he was charged with the murder of his wife and his son. So he's in prison for some sort of fraud embezzlement case anyway from 
there's something kind of fraudulent going on with money, but now he's been charged with the murder of his wife and his son. Interesting right. how that one has developed. Yeah. One to keep an eye on. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's, it's a really interesting story. So if you want a kind of a deep dive into a big, complicated story, that's a good one to listen to. Thank you for that. Cool. So tonight I am going to be telling you the story of the backpacker murders uh-huh. from Australia. Oh, yeah. So on the 19th of September 1992, whilst out on a jog through the Balango Forest, two runners started to smell something that smelled like decomposing. Ooh. They initially thought it might have been a, a kangaroo that had died and was just rotting away. But as they continued further along their trail, they discovered a pile of sticks and leaves where the smell seemed to be coming from. On further investigation, they found a, some bones and hair. And looking even closer, they saw there was a black T-shirt and a shoe that was clearly still attached to a skeletal foot. Um, It was getting dark, so they marked where the spot was, carried on with their run. And when they'd Mm -hmm. finished, they contacted the police to tell them. The police came that night and used torches to find the body and confirmed that it was indeed a person, not a kangaroo. Ah. They contacted the local police force, local homicide teams, and also the Missing People's Bureau because they knew that they were investigating a spate of missing backpackers. Oh, okay. The following morning, when police went back to the scene of the crime, they discovered a second body about 100 foot away from the first body, which was kind of partially hidden under a log. And quite quickly, police were able to tell and they confirmed via dental records that these were the bodies of Carolyn Clark and Joanna Walters. They were British backpackers and they'd been missing for five months. Oh, right. Okay. Joanna Walters had been stabbed at least 14 times, uh, four times in the chest, once in the neck and nine times in the back, which would have paralysed her. Yeah. And one of the stab wounds had severed her spine. Oh, Carolyn Clark had been shot 10 times in the head at the site. And due to the location, the angle, the types of wounds, police believe that she'd been used as target practice by whoever killed her, probably after she died. And they found six cigarette butts, all of the same brand, as well as some bullet casings and some, some bits of plastic that they thought they could use as part of kind of forensic evidence. They found nine more shell cases whilst looking around the areas, which they hoped would help them to identify the make of the gun. Yeah. And they found a fireplace that had been built in this forest that they thought had been built by the killer, which showed that he'd been kind of hanging around the area, using it as somewhere to just kind of hang out at. Fireplace. I've got visions of something standing in the middle of the forest with, yeah, like a, with a clock on it and, yeah. <laughs> and some photographs. <laughs> I think more kind of like a fire pit, probably. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And yeah, probably no photos. <laughs> but they also noticed there was no sort of camping gear from these girls that had been left behind. When they examined the body's further, they discovered that Joanne's body had some dark hairs on them. Yeah. Um, that they thought again might would probably could probably come from the killer. She had cloth which was used as a gag in her mouth and some other pieces of cloth kind of around her throat, leading investigators to believe that some sort of strangulation had occurred as well. Right. Oh, but okay. that probably isn't what had killed her. 
there weren't any signs of her being raped, but her body was so decomposed that it was difficult to determine completely. But actually, kind of other circumstantial evidence around the case led to them believing that her murder was probably from a sexual motive. Right. She had stab wounds on the right side of her body, the left side, and these the neck wounds were there. And an internal exam revealed that five stab wounds had cut her spine, um, as well as that kind of one at the top, at the base of her neck that had completely severed her spinal cord. Well, that, that would probably uh, do it then, wouldn't it? Yeah. She had no sort of the wounds on her hands that would be like defensive wounds, so where she'd kind of put her hands up to try and stop being stabbed. So that led them to believe that she'd been restrained in some way while it had yep. happened, because she wasn't trying to kind of fight back. Right, okay. And the kind of the picture of the scene really indicated that the killer was completely in control of it. So yeah. he had, had really taken control of, of the entire scene. Yeah. Um, it wasn't chance. It wasn't it wasn't just a random killing. It was there was clearly a lot of overkill there. And also it obviously been planned and calculated how, how the killer would commit the crimes. When Carolyn Clark's body was found, her yeah. arms were stretched above her head. And she had a red cloth wrapped around her head to kind of cover up her face. Yeah. And she was the one who'd been shot 10 times in the head. And okay. it was with that same twenty-two caliber gun that they'd found the, the shells for. They also found on further investigation that she had a stab wound to her upper back, which had severed her spine. So it's obviously someone who knew what they were doing. Those yep. injuries were probably inflicted first to kind of paralyze them, essentially, before they went on to inflict the other wounds. Sounds very sadistic. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? The location and the impact of the gun wounds on her skull and the way that they'd kind of exited her skull led investigators to believe that the killer had been standing quite a long way away from her when he shot her. So he wasn't, it wasn't at close range. And that's what led them to believe that they thought it was target practice. She was being used as target practice. And by putting that kind of red cloth over her head, it had kind of, dehumanized her basically so he was kind of stepping away and shooting away and it kind of paints this horrific scene of there being just this fire in the middle of the woods with these dead bodies there and him just kind of shooting them and stabbing them awful yep despite the forensic pathologist releasing quite a lot of these graphic details to the press which was unheard of at the time really the very, very few leads came forward and it left detectives baffled. Nobody really knew anything about these British women, where they might mm-hmm. have, who might have taken them. Police decided to bring in Dr. Rod Milton, who was a forensic profiler who'd helped police catch John Wayne Glover, another serial killer from Australia who'd killed six elderly women in 1989. He not John called... Wayne Gacy. <laughs> not John Wayne Gacy, no. <laughs> Every country needs a John Wayne. John Wayne Gur. <laughs> John Wayne Gur, yeah. Not John Wayne Gacy, John Wayne Glover. So Dr. Milton visited the area to kind of see where the killer had been operating. They were they were confident that the girls had been killed there. They hadn't been killed elsewhere and kind of transported and just dumped there. They were confident that, that was the site of where they'd been killed. He yeah. felt that the what the the injuries and the state of Carolyn Clark showed that he had a totally different motive when he killed her than when he killed Joanne Walters because they'd been killed so differently. Carolyn's clothing was intact and he'd covered her head to you know, impersonalise yeah. her, as well as shooting her from a distance with no real kind of indication of any sort of sexual motive 
to this crime. Okay. It was more of an execution, whereas Joanne's murder seemed to indicate more a much more sexual motive, along with kind of rage and brutality, the stabbing. It was much closer, much more intimate. You know, she was found with her trousers down. She didn't have any underwear on, but her kind of top half was still intact. He also raised the possibility of there being an accomplice mm. due to how different the two murders were because right. yeah. They, yeah. they'd been killed so differently to each other and they had such different wounds. So he raised the possibility that actually this could have been two people that had murdered these two women. Two two people that worked together or just yeah. two completely independent no, he thought they must have been working together because the girls were together, they were backpacking together and they thought they'd been kind of taken and killed at the same time. They hadn't been taken at different times. Right. Dr. Milton summarised that both murders were pleasure kills and sport, basically, and that he believed that the killer lived on the outskirts of the city and he was employed in a kind of outdoor, semi-skilled job. He was either in an unstable or satisfying relationship he thought that he probably had a history of homo or bisexuality and a history of aggression against authority and that he was probably in his mid-30s. Right, okay. The things went pretty quiet. Nothing came, no one else came forward. They weren't able to, to work out he might have done this. This was until October 1993, when a local man who was searching for firewood discovered bones in a particularly remote section of the forest. He wasn't sure initially, again, if it was a kangaroo bone um, <laughs> or or human. Apparently, there's a lot of dead kangaroos in this forest. Yeah, well, um, I suppose they've got to die somewhere, haven't they? Yeah, yeah <laughs> go to the forest to die. So he apparently held up this kangaroo bone, or this, this bone that he found, to his thigh to yep. compare sizes to work out if he thought it was a human bone or a kangaroo bone. And he thought, actually, this probably is human. And as he explored further, he found a human skull. Ah. He wasn't sure what to do with it, so he wrapped it in some material and took it away with him, as you do if you find a skull. He returned with police to the scene where two bodies were quickly discovered, like kind of two complete skeletons were quickly discovered, and they were later identified as James Gibson and Deborah Everest. And James and Deborah were a young Victorian couple from Frankston who hadn't been seen since leaving Sydney for a festival in on the 30th of December, 1989. Oh my so these okay. backpackers had gone missing four years ago. James Gibson's skeleton was found in a fetal position and it showed eight stab wounds. A large knife had cut through his upper spine, causing yep. paralysis, and stab wounds to his back and chest would have punctured his heart and lungs. Those are obviously the only injuries that they can tell from the bones there could have been much more stab wounds but if they were just kind of into muscle and tissue you wouldn't have known about it but they were the kind Mm. of stab wounds that they could tell had been so deep they'd gone through to bones yeah deborah had been savagely beaten her skull was fractured in two places and her jaw was broken there were knife marks on her forehead and she'd been stabbed at least once in the back the presence of James Gibson's body in this forest though really puzzled investigators because they knew that they'd gone missing they'd been looking for this couple for for a while before kind of closing the case and they found his camera on the 31st of December 1989 and he found his backpack on the 13th of March 1990 either side of the road at Galston Gorge which was in the kind of northern Sydney suburbs and that was over 75 miles to the north so their bodies were nowhere near where they were kind of expecting to find them yeah yeah. 
Mm. On the 1st of November 1993, so just a, f- a few weeks later, a skeleton was found in a clearing along a fire trail in the forest during a police sweep. It was later identified as that of Simone Schmidt, um, who was 21 from Germany, and she'd been missing since leaving Sydney for Melbourne on the 20th of January 1991. Wow. She had at least eight stab wounds, two had severed her spine, and others would have punctured her heart and lungs from kind of where they where they could see. Clothing that was found at the scene wasn't actually hers, though, but it matched that of another missing backpacker, Anya Habshid, who was 20. Yeah. And she disappeared after leaving a King's Cross hostel for Mildura on the 26th of December 1991 with her boyfriend, Gabor Neugebauer. Their bodies were subsequently found on the 4th of November, so just a couple of days later, in shallow graves about 50 metres apart. Habshid had been decapitated, and despite an extensive search, her skull was never found. And Neugebauer had been shot in the head six times. Before these bodies were discovered on the 14th of October, a task force air containing more than 20 detectives and... and, 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 What, a task force air? Yeah, that's what it's called. Task Force Air, which was set up, containing more than 20 detectives and analysts, was set up by the New South Wales Police. Okay. On the 5th of November, after they'd found all these new bodies, the New South Wales government increased the reward in relation to their serial killings to $500,000 for any sort of information that people might come forward with. Public warnings were given, particularly aimed at backpackers and saying, you know, do not hitchhike along this highway because they were pretty convinced that there was a serial killer out there who was just targeting yeah. backpackers. Yeah, and even um, if you're in pairs, he was uh, yeah. attacking them. Yep. And um, after kind of further developing the profile of the killer, they faced an enormous volume of data from numerous sources. And they looked kind of vehicle records, gym memberships, gun licensing, international and internal police records. And from that, they managed to kind of narrow their list of suspects down to 32 potential people that could have been committing these murders. They noted that there were similar aspects to all of these murders. Each of the bodies had been dumped in remote bushland in this forest and covered in a pyramid of sticks and ferns. They determined that they'd each suffered multiple stab wounds to the torso, and many of the victims showed signs of sexual assault, or as much as they kind of could deduce, depending on you know, how decomposed yeah, yeah. his bodies were. Yeah. They thought the killer was probably a local with a four-wheel drive, and he'd evidently restrained and spent considerable time with the victims, both during and after the murders, as campsites were discovered close to the location of each body, oh, okay. more kind of fire pits and things like that. So they thought that, you know, the killer had probably kind of kidnapped these people, yep. taken them to this place, tortured them, probably for quite a long period of time. Set up like a death camp almost. For Basically, yeah. Each, each abduction he did. Yeah, spent a few days torturing them. And then when he'd got bored, killed them and then carried on kind of playing oh with God. the bodies for a few days later. And then, you know, sort of half-heartedly disposing of them in this space that he thought no one would ever find them because they were kind of deep in, in the, the bush, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All under the cover of uh, the outback, yeah. Yeah. Matching twenty-two calibre bullets, shell casings and cartridge boxes from two weapons also linked to the crime scenes. So they knew that there was only two weapons that had been used in all of these different murders from a gun point of view and 
But since speculation started to arise that the crimes were the work of several killers, given that most of the victims had been attacked whilst in pairs um, and they'd been killed in different ways and buried separately. So, you know, there wasn't, they thought, you know, can one person just capture two people, kill them both, bury them both separately? Hmm. On the 13th of November, 1993, Police received a call from a man named Paul Onions, who was 24, from the UK. On the 25th of January 1990, Onions had been backpacking Australia, and whilst hitchhiking from Liverpool Station towards Mildura, he'd accepted a ride south out of Kajula from a man known only as Bill. South of the town of Mittagong and less than a kilometre from the Belongo State Forest, Bill stopped and pulled out a revolver and some ropes, stating it was a robbery, at which point Onions managed to flee while Bill pursued and shot at him. Onions flagged down Joanne Berry, a passing motorist, and together they sped off and described the assailant and his vehicle to the local police. On the 13th of April 1994, detectives refound the note regarding his call and oh, wow. sought the original <laughs> report from the Burrell police, but it was missing. So it had taken, you know, six months really for the, for the police to actually act on this. He'd called them in November and say, Hey, so I was I was in that, that area four years, three years ago, and I was nearly kidnapped. They lost that message, which would have been a pretty decent lead, wouldn't it? <laughs> when they kind of came around to it, they realised that they'd lost the original statement, but because the constable had recorded details in her notebook, his statement was then corroborated by Berry, who they managed to track down and talk to. And she said, oh yeah, I helped this guy escape from this other guy who was crazy. The police focused in on a man called Ivan Malat. Ivan Malat was the son of a Croatian immigrant and a labourer. Uh, called Stefan and an Australian lady called Margaret and he was born on the 27th of December 1944 um, in in Guildford in Australia okay he was the fifth of 14 children and his parents got married when they were 16 the family first uh, lived in various suburbs around Sydney and Many of the kind of 10 Malat boys, there's 10 boys and four girls, and, and the 10 boys, most of them, were well known to the local police. Ivan Malat displayed real antisocial behaviour at a very young age, leading to a stint in a residential school at the age of 13. By 17, he was in a juvenile detention centre for theft, and by the age of 19, he was involved in a shop breaking. In 1964, when he was 1920, he was sentenced to 18 months for a break and enter. And a month after his release, he was arrested for driving a stolen car and sentenced to two years of hard labour. In September 1967, age 22, he was sentenced to three years for theft. In April 1971, he was charged with the abduction of two 18-year-old hitchhikers, one of whom he raped. Whilst he was awaiting trial, he was involved in a string of robberies with some of his brothers, before faking his own suicide and fleeing to New Zealand for a year. <laughs> he was then rearrested <laughs> in 1974 yeah. and they realised that he wasn't dead. But the robbery and kidnap cases against him failed at trial and with the help of their family lawyer, they managed to kind of get him off. In 1975, he took on a job as a truck driver 
And by the time of his arrest, he'd been worked on and off for the roads traffic authority for 20 years. So he knew the roads Uh. and the system in that area really well. In 1975, he met a 16-year-old girl who was pregnant by his cousin, and they got married in 1983, and they had a daughter of their own. However, they split up in 1987 when she left him due to her experience of domestic violence under him, which isn't surprising, really. And they divorced in October 1989, which is when these disappearances started happening. Mm. So police started staking out his house in February 1994. They learned that he'd recently sold his silver Nissan Patrol four-wheel drive shortly after the discovery of the bodies of Carolyn Clark and Joanne Walters. Right. Police also confirmed that he'd not been working on any of the days that the attacks had taken place. And acquaintances told police about his obsession with weapons. When the connection between the Belanglo murders and Onion's experience was made, Onion's flew to Australia to help with the investigation, which was nice of him. On the 5th of May 1994, he positively identified Malat as the man who'd picked him up and attempted to murder him. So he wasn't called Bill at all. Malat was arrested at his home on the 22nd of May 1994 on robbery and weapon charges related to the Onion's attack after 50 police officers surrounded his house. 50. Wow. 50, yeah. <laughs> they weren't letting him get away. No, that's pretty tight. They searched his home and it revealed various weapons, including a 22 caliber Anschutz model rifle yep. and parts of a 22 caliber, another 22 caliber rifle that matched the type used in the murders. They found a Browning pistol and a Bowie knife. They also uncovered several items belonging to his victims oh, really? that were in his house. Hmm. The homes that belonged to his mother and five of his brothers were also searched. And when they did, they found even more items that belonged to even more of the victims, which probably wasn't a coincidence. No. He appeared in court on the 23rd of May, 1994, but he didn't enter a plea. On the 31st of May, he was also charged with the seven backpacker murders. His brothers were also tried in relation to weapons, drugs and stolen items found on their properties, but not in relation to the murders itself. Things that the police uncovered when they were (laughs) investigating the main crime. He had a committal hearing, which started on the 24th of October and lasted until the 12th of December, during which over 200 witnesses appeared and were interviewed. Based on the evidence, they decided that he was to be remanded in custody until he went to trial. The trial was opened at the Supreme Court of New South Wales in Sydney on the 26th of March, 1996. So it took quite a long time for it to get to trial. And despite the overwhelming evidence against him, he was reported as being confident he would be found innocent. I mean, the fact that, you know, they had a victim positive to identify him, the fact that he completely fitted the profile of the profiler. He had victims belongings in his house he owned the exact weapons that were used in the crime i'd say that's probably beyond a reasonable doubt in my mind but he was yeah (laughs) he was pretty confident that he was going to be found innocent he said that you know his basic defense in his trial was that it wasn't me he said i don't know who did it it was up to them to prove my guilt not for me to prove my innocence his defense argued that in spite of the evidence there was no non-circumstantial proof that he was guilty and attempted to shift the blame to other members of his family, particularly his brother Richard. 
145 witnesses took the stand during his trial, including members of his family who endeavoured to provide alibis for Ivan Milat. Okay. On the 18th of June, he gave evidence himself, but then on the 27th of July, after 18 weeks of testimony, a jury found him guilty of the murders. He was given a life sentence on each count without the possibility of parole. So there were seven life sentences. And he was also convicted of the attempted murder and false imprisonment and robbery of onions, for which he received six years jail for each charge. Right, okay. So he won't be getting out anytime soon. No. Um, On his first day of being uh, put in jail, he was beaten up by another inmate. And almost a year later, he made an escape attempt alongside a convicted drug dealer. However, it failed and the drug dealer was then found hanged in his cell the next day. And Malat was transferred to a maximum security section at a different jail. He appealed against his convictions in 1997. However, the appeal was dismissed and he was transferred to a different maximum security area later on in his sentence because they were worried that he was still going to try and escape. Or Oh, OK. Not just for his own safety then. Being... Not just for his own safety, <laughs> no. On the 8th of November 2004, he gave a televised interview in which he denied that any of his family had been involved in, in any of the murders. Okay. But on, on the 26th of January, he cut off his little finger with a plastic knife with the intention of mailing it to the High Court of Australia to force an appeal. It didn't work. He was taken to, uh, you know, he was taken to hospital and he was given some sort of treatment, but they couldn't fix it back on. And it then became apparent that he'd harmed himself quite a lot in the past when he'd swallowed razor blades, staples and other metal yeah. objects. He... Oh had, <laughs> he also, I know, he also undertook a nine-day hunger strike because he wanted to be given a PlayStation to play on while he was in prison. In May 9, 2019, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and he was given treatment for this. But however, he was told in August that year that he was terminally ill um, and was moved to a secure treatment unit. On the 27th of October 2019, he died from esophageal and stomach cancer, aged 74 years. Okay, right. Before he died, he wrote to his family, requesting that his funeral would be paid for by the New South Wales government. <laughs> and the government said, um, no, absolutely not. <laughs> he, uh, and he was cremated and everything was paid for by the his own prison account. Right, and yeah. in his kind of final days, they were desperately trying to get a um, confession confession from him to Mm -hmm. find out you know if he'd killed anybody else why he'd done it and they they went to him eight times in his last final days to try and get this confession from him but he didn't confess and they didn't manage to get really any further information from him that helped with their investigation Mm so yeah that is the story of the backpacker murders and Ivan Malat, wow. who was sent to prison for the brutal killings of those seven yeah. people. Any, think, any indications to why he... Bit of fun, isn't it? <laughs> I think it was, his, uh, it was just something that he got a thrill out of. Why does anybody kill anybody? Wow, yeah. 
as another little side note, his uh, great nephew, Matthew, and then his friend, in 2012, they were sentenced to 43 years in prison for murdering a man named David Ortoloni on his mm-hmm. 17th birthday with an axe in Ooh. the Belanglio State Forest in November 2010. Apparently, Matthew Malat, who was his great nephew, yep. killed him whilst his friend recorded it with a mobile phone. And uh, mm. yeah. So, a problem un- family, unsavory family. Yes, I think so. Yes, something oh, like yeah. that. Um, but yeah, brutal and really scary. That idea that you could because hitchhiking was just a thing, wasn't it? In Australia, especially at that time, you know, people hitchhiking around Australia in the late eighties, early nineties. And he obviously knew that there was opportunity there for him to kidnap these people. I guess there was a sexual motive there that he wanted to kind of kidnap them and. Yep. Sexually assault them, murder yeah. them. And then well, he thought he sounds could like it. get yeah. away with it. I mean, it sounds like, you know, even from a really early age, he was kidnapping yeah. people <laughs> and doing awful things. And, you know, there's years and years of time in kind of juvenile detention and hard labor and things like that. You don't know what that does what that to does someone. To yeah. Day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when he was living in a in a town or a city, wasn't it? Oh um, um, no, that was still when he was kind of living in the suburbs of Sydney. Well, yeah. So it's not like he he was living in the outback on his own oh, sort of no. thing. Where he, I suppose, if you did spend an awful lot of time in a very lonely sort of place, you might yeah. start making up your own rules of life. <laughs> that's true. But I think you know he he worked for the city. He yeah. had a job with you know the city he was in the suburbs it, yeah he wasn't in the middle of nowhere yeah him. yeah sure wow so do you have any pictures there are some pictures that i can absolutely share he's got a ridiculous mustache okay uh, proper like 80s like handlebar mustache so yep i'll yep. share them on instagram at Dad and Daughter Do Death. I'll share them on Facebook. Dad and Daughter Do Death. And if you want to get in touch with us at all, you can email us at dadanddaughterdodeath at gmail.com. Thank you all very much for, for listening to this episode. And thank you as well if you've been in touch with us recently. We really do appreciate, appreciate your feedback. It's good to hear yes, from you. absolutely. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you ever so much for that story, Phoebe. It's uh, it's chilling, isn't it? That yeah, in the middle of nowhere, that these yeah. sort of uh, and just the idea of him like kidnapping these women and having them and these men and just like yeah. having them tied up in the middle of a forest and torturing, torturing them, them for potentially for days, days. Um, yeah, when they're just having a nice time. And yeah, the the film Wolf Creek is loosely based on right. this story. Okay. Of, yeah, kind of backpackers in Australia getting kidnapped and tortured. Brilliant story. Thank you. And as ever, if you found yourself being interested in this story, yeah, what what should people look for? I guess. Uh, yeah, search for Ivan Malat. There are some other kind of deeper dives. I think Case File did a five part series on it. Right. You know, much more detailed than we've gone into tonight. Just wets the appetite, but, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Baster. Yeah, there's loads out there about him. I think he's probably the most prolific serial killer in Australia. So, yeah, lots out there about him if you want to find out more. Great. Thank you very much, Phoebe. You're welcome. So, uh, yeah, thank you for listening. And we hope you join us next time. And once again, Dad. And daughter, do death. (laughs) 